Hello, and welcome to For Whom the Cell Tolls. Today's episode is called The Arms Race, Our Immune System versus Pathogen. Pathogens are bugs, you know, all the things that make us sick. Bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungi, protists, all kinds of scary stuff. Our immune system rises against these, these pathogens with an array of defenses. And those defenses have always been evolving to match the new things that pathogens can throw at us. So there's great examples of this. We'll get into, you know, I'm going to go over the immune system as I see it, and I think it's a very interesting overview. But first, I want to start with a story, and it's about one of the scariest pathogens humans have ever encountered, and that's the smallpox virus. Smallpox essentially goes in, rips through bodies, and goes out. A lot of the times when you were infected, if you had no, you know, previous exposure when you were a kid, anything like that, you would usually die. Interestingly, smallpox is one of the first things that we quote-unquote vaccinated against. Scientists in Europe were able to see that anyone working with cows, which were often infected with the cow version of smallpox, they had an immunity to the human smallpox. He figured out that if you dosed people with small, small amounts of this cow smallpox, they developed some kind of resistance to the virus. So we figured out later that what what they were doing, he was essentially exposing small bits of the virus that would trigger the immune system to remember the virus and mount a full defense, which our immune system is capable of in a lot of cases. Normally, if you get too big of an exposure of smallpox, it'll rip through before the immune system has a chance to do anything. So smallpox is still a very dangerous disease. Good thing is, though, we found a true vaccine against it later in, I think, 1950s, 60s, 40s, something like that. And it was massively distributed. It was an amazing effort of, you know, on the part of the world getting these vaccines out. And essentially, it's gone. Because the smallpox virus that exists in humans can only exist in humans. Remember, viruses insert their DNA. They attack specific kinds of cells. Even the cells of a chimpanzee are not susceptible to the human smallpox, as far as I know. It's very, very specific. So that's why it's essentially gone, except for two samples in the world. One is in the CDC in Atlanta in the United States. The other is in Koltsovo, Russia, in the equivalent CDC in Russia. So the issue here that I present to my students sometimes, and it's a question you know you, you can easily wrestle with, should the last two remaining pieces of smallpox, the vials, whatever they're in, should they be irreversibly destroyed? Or should they be kept around? Now, there's multiple reasons and multiple pathways that you can approach this problem. The first is that usually, yes, we should get rid of them. I think it was 1986 that an employee who was above or below the floor with the smallpox, um, she was accidentally exposed and she died. And, you know, is one life really worth keeping these things around, right? The other thing is that we kind of get into economics with this problem. Let's say we do mandate that we're going to destroy both samples. How do we know somebody else has destroyed their sample? Because if we destroy our, our sample, we have no way to study smallpox or how it could come back and, like, say that there's a dormant version of the virus out there somewhere. We have no way to study it all of a sudden. And there's the other issue is, like I said, the game theory is this was comes in. Do we really get rid of our deterrent when another one could be the only one left if we get rid of it? Do we really trust, you know, a quote unquote adversary at this moment with Russia 
I don't know, I don't want to get into geopolitics or anything, but do you trust anyone to say, I'll destroy mine if you destroy yours? Because the advantage of destroying it is outweighed by the disadvantage of not destroying it, the possibility. And so it's a very cool prisoner's dilemma type of thing. You know, I, I'd invite you to definitely think about that. Most of my class consensus was always, no, we should not destroy it. We can study it. We can do all these things. And I tend to agree because with things like CRISPR where you can manipulate DNA, things like that, the tools are out there to manipulate a smallpox virus and make it into this new like kind of super disease we'd have to have some tools to start the process of fighting that if, you know, such a thing ever was released in any case. But, you know, definitely a scary thing that the smallpox genome, it's out there, it exists. So another, another really cheery example and story to start the, uh, start the cast. And I want to go into the immune system as a follow-up to this because our immune system is capable of defeating big bad things like smallpox that have all these mechanisms of getting away from our immune system, but it still manages to do a really good job of finding it in a lot of cases. So essentially bugs or pathogens, remember the bacteria, viruses, parasites, they just want to complete their life cycle. And oftentimes we're the environment to do it. There are, all, there are a ton of viruses actually out there that don't really do any harm to us. They just go in and they go out kind of thing. But a lot of the viruses, parasite, bacteria, all that, they get inside and they do some serious damage. So some of our cells, long time ago, you know, there were whatever our ancestors were when this first started, certain cells in those organisms gained the ability to fight back. They rose up and defended the organism in which they were living. And this started as a very simple thing. Probably cells that when they recognized a pathogen just secreted chemicals everywhere and tried to kill everything around it. And that's probably where the arms race started. Then the bacteria became, had hardened uh, membranes around their cells maybe. And then the chemicals got harsher maybe, or maybe the first immune cell that could eat bacterial cells showed up. Now what we have is a dual system of the immune system. Sorry. It's the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And the story always starts with the innate system. So you are exposed to probably more than trillions of incoming pathogens, some of them dangerous to us, on a daily basis. The doorknob you touch today will determine what your immune system has like on its plate to fight that day. That's how quick this can happen. So starting with the innate immune system, innate in itself just means it's just there all the time. There are certain aspects of our immune system that don't need training, don't have memory, and they're not specific. But the advantage of this is that they're very rapid. First layer is that we have skin, we have mucous membranes, we have a microbiome that covers our insides. So just simple barriers like that, that's part of your immune system. Skin's one of the biggest, most helpful organs out there because it just keeps everything out. We are a living unit and it keeps that that way. The next cool thing, and we'll go into these when we get into some cancer cell therapies too, because they're emerging, natural killer cells. They sound really cool. They are. These are permanently trained, and they, when they evolve and they differentiate into these natural killer cells, remember when they divide and come through, they are ready to kill anything that looks like it's been infected by virus. They're ready to kill anything that looks like a classical bacteria. So remember, bacteria have very different characteristics than our human cells. 
um, such as how their DNA is, such as the things like the little surface proteins on the surface of their cells. Natural killer cells, they're always ready to attack and kill anything that looks strictly non-human. The third cool little thing is actually a system of proteins called complement. These, we're still learning a lot about these, but they essentially are running around the immune system and like natural killer cells, they are primed to bind and attack things that are non-human looking. They are non-self looking. They look like a foreign invader, essentially. They can cooperate with the adaptive immune system quite a bit too. And they can also act when they bind to certain things. They can act as like a targeting mechanism for the natural killer cells or the other cells to come in. So next is the adaptive immune system. And the adaptive actually bridges the gap between the innate immune system through macrophages and dendritic cells. What these cells do is when they see an invading bacteria or invading virus cell, maybe, or a cell that's been infected by a virus, let's say, they, they perform a process called phagocytosis, where they essentially engulf the foreign body and they digest it inside. Now, there's tons of these little foreign bodies running around, so you're only going to be able to engulf so many. But what dendritic cells and the macrophages do they eat that cell and they digest it into small pieces and they put those pieces on the surface of their cells, on the surface of them. So now they're exposing what the pathogen that they just ate, what it looks like on the outside of their cells. So essentially they're going to touch to communicate like Braille essentially with other cells that are going to recognize, okay, that bit of protein that this cell is telling me it just ate, that doesn't look human, that's bad. Because these cells are always going around, you know, gobbling up like our dying cells, things like that. If they present something that looks just normal, our immune cells are actually trained to say, oh, that's fine. Because they go through certain processes that essentially educate them to not attack. So once you're presenting these antigens on the surface of the cell, they activate helper cells, which in a lot of cases are T cells. So remember T cells, we get, they're pretty famous through, you know, HIV infection, they, they kill pathogens, things like that. The first step though, is that helper T cells recognize the pathogen, the little bits of pathogen that are being presented. These go on to activate the big bad T killer cells and B cells. T killer cells, there are real true adaptive cells, same as B cells, but the killer cells are good because although this response is slower than the innate immune system, those natural killer cells, the T cells are specific to a very specific pathogen and just what it looks like. The other good thing is that they have a memory of what previous things looked like. That's why you don't get sick with the same time, they're the same thing twice. Flu is an exception because the flu virus is always changing. So T cells get activated by the helper cells. Now they go in through like kind of a little self-evolution where they interchange a bunch of segments of their own DNA to form a specific kind of like hook on the top of their cells. And so there are versions of about three or four genes that can form this hook, and each of those four segments has about 20 different of variations of it. So it can actually change all those variations to create a very like, you know, you can create all kinds of combinations, and one of those combinations is going to be is going to be the best one to bind to the bad pathogen. And it's going to go find it and get it. Next thing is the B cells. And these are mine. These are the ones that I study all the time. Lymphoma. I think they're amazing. They're kind of like the, they're kind of the loser of the immune system, I think sometimes, which is kind of sad because when you're vaccinating, like essentially you're triggering the B cells to produce antibodies. 
And that's how we characteristically know them is that they produce antibodies. So similar to the killer T cells, the B cells have to be exposed to that little bit of pathogen by the helper cells. This is where things get cool. When they're exposed to this pathogen, they undergo a very violent selection process. And it's very similar to something in ecology that happens in sand sharks. When sand sharks are pregnant, in, and so in the mom, the eggs inside the womb start hatching. The strongest eggs that start hatching, those strongest baby sharks, they start killing all of their siblings until only two of the strongest are left. They essentially fight to the death to find who's the best one. Everyone else dies, though. This has to do also with that some male sharks um, can cross-fertilize in uh, the, the female shark. So you actually have, like, different siblings, and, like, only half-siblings in that case. So it's pretty, pretty crazy. B-cells are kind of the same way. When they're born, essentially, is the first time they see the pathogen, there are millions of them that see it and are exposed to it. And they're doing the same thing the T-cells are. They're manipulating their genome to, like, form this little hook which is what we call the B-cell receptor. It's going to turn into the antibody, the little Y-shaped thing that goes off and finds pathogen. But what first has to happen is the, the B-cell receptor, it has to bind the pathogen the best, and there are tons of B-cells competing for this. The B-cell with the best binding receptor is going to get signals the most because it's going to be binding to that bad pathogen bit. The more signals, the more survival. And it's going to essentially eat those pathogens away from its, you know, essentially its siblings. It's going to deny them any signaling if it's the best binding one. And essentially those ones will starve away, leaving only the very, very best B cell that's producing antibodies that are going to go and, you know, swarm over whatever is invading because it looks just like that pathogen. Again, a very cool thing where they can switch genes to make this variation so specific. And the cool thing with B cells too is that... It's the only case in which our body allows mutation to happen because little bits of mutation in these B cells at the right, at the right spot can actually increase the variation that our B cell receptors can put on top of themselves and like then they can recognize pathogen even better. Because remember, you got millions of them, so if a bad mutation happens, just throw that one out. So, very cool stuff. And that's the adaptive immune system. Essentially, you end up with something that is highly specific to a pathogen. Best thing is, too, with T and B cells, especially B cells, there are memory B cells that just sit and they just stay frozen. But if the same pathogen ever comes back, they'll remount a response very quickly and you'll never get sick. That's what vaccinations essentially do is they give little bits of harmless pathogen that look like the virus and the B cells form a response. And from then on, you have a memory response. Perfect. Now, all this being said, and the power of the immune system, very cool. Pathogens do way, find ways to avoid this. The immune system can tackle enormous creatures like, you know, parasitic worms. It's an amazing thing to watch on video. Just they swarm over it. But sometimes pathogens get away. They can manipulate their DNA. They can inhibit the immune cells. They can hide from the immune cells. All kinds of crazy stuff. And some things are really hard to detect. You know, regular old bacteria, parasites, fungi, protists, they don't look human. So for the most part, the immune system can handle them. Things that are harder are virus-infected cells that are capable of hiding that, you know, any changes <clears throat> in them. And probably the hardest thing to hide, 
well, one of the hardest things to hide is a cancer cell. We do know now that the immune system is very good at killing cancer cells, just not good enough sometimes. There's one example of a pathogen that is impossible for the immune system to find. And you may have heard of it in mad cow disease, but it's called a prion. It's a protein that has essentially misshapen itself and it's capable of going to similar proteins, and these are often in the brain, and misshaping them. And they go on to misshape other ones. So it's this really strange, basically chemical pathogen. It's, you cannot say it's alive, it's just a protein, but it leaves no trace, it's incurable, it's really scary stuff. So luckily we think we kind of handled that, but for the most part, yeah, definitely make sure you don't eat any mad cows because they could have a misfolding protein that runs around going inside your cells and like screwing everything up. So scary stuff again, sorry. So now we've covered all this power that the immune system has and we've touched on what I'm about to touch on now, which is autoimmunity, which is when the immune system accidentally starts targeting our cells. So remember the T and B cells, when they go through that development, there's a stage before they even get to the pathogen that they are exposed to our tissue and our cells. And if they start reacting, they actually die at that stage. That's called T-cell and B-cell education. They are not allowed to kill our own cells. That's what makes fighting cancer hard. But in some cases, they get away. And this is a theme that you know is explored in literature, and I'm gonna probably do another cast on it, is creator versus created. And that's autoimmunity kind of, in a, kind of in a bubble. You know, we can often be destroyed by our own creations. Um, you know, we see this a lot in literature that addresses uh, bioethics, the best of which is probably Frankenstein, which actually borrows a lot from this creator-created theme from Paradise Lost. So a very interesting parallel. I think I'll do a whole cast on that. Another a shout out for another good creator versus created philosophy is Rick and Morty, actually. That's kind of one of the main themes. I do try and make my wife sit down and like laugh at it sometimes, and she usually just gets up and leaves. I don't blame her. I think even the dog doesn't like it, so it's okay. <laughs> so the issue with autoimmunity and when your immune system kills your own cells is you got to remember that our bodies have been fighting off pathogen for so long before we had hygiene, antibiotics, vaccines, and, and water, essentially, that was clean. So... Our immune cells can are still really prone to attacking. And one of the best examples of that is when, um, you know, the immune cells accidentally target the uh, beta cells in the pancreas and they attack them. They think that they are foreign pathogen, you know, for whatever reason, and they kill all of them. And the problem is, is that response is never going away. Our immune cells are trained to have memory. They're never going to let those come back. They think, and forever they will think, that those are bad. Same thing with the gluten that we talked about with the microbiome. The minute the immune system thinks that gluten is an enemy, anytime you eat it, it will rise up and fight as though a virus is coming in or a, a parasite that they've encountered before. So this happens a lot of times with tissue transplants. So say somebody gets... Um, like an organ donation or something. This is tough. <clears throat> even though that's technically a foreign body, it's still human. Even the smallest differences between human to human, sibling to sibling even, they'll be targeted and the immune cells can go in and like attack the new tissue. And that can cause all kinds of systemic bad effects. The worst of which is something called cytokine storm. 
Now, cytokine storm is a like a nuclear overload of the immune system. And this is actually how a lot of diseases kill people. It's not actually the disease or the virus or the bacteria itself. It's that it inspires the immune system to go way into overcharge. The Spanish flu did this because, you know, in 1918, which was the worst, probably the worst epidemic we've seen in the last century, because it wasn't killing old and young people. It was killing, um, it was killing middle-aged healthy people because their immune system was strong. When the virus would go in, it would trigger so many mechanisms of the immune system that they would all shoot out signals that said fire, 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 essentially just and go, go, go from all different angles, too many angles. Cytokine storm is that cytokines are little signals that the immune cells send between each other that say attack, attack, or settle down. But essentially what these diseases do to inspire cytokine storm is trigger multiple pathways all at once. And it's this feed forward mechanism where you know, one set of cytokines will trigger more cytokines. Those will trigger even more and more and more until the person essentially burns up. We have ways of controlling this now, but it's actually one of the issues that we run into with all these immunotherapies and cancer biology now. So we'll touch on that again in another uh, another episode. So one of the worst things of all in autoimmunity is that with mental and neurogenitive diseases, we lack a genetic component you know, a strong genetic component. And mainly what we see in these variants that predict these diseases are high inflammation, which means that these people are prone to having a very strong immune system. We see this sometimes with multiple sclerosis where the immune cells will attack the nerves and the myelin sheaths that make the nerves function. And what we see with a lot of these really, really bad neurogenitive, uh, neurodegenerative diseases is that the immune system is somehow targeting the wrong cells they're targeting our cells and that's something that we are trying really hard to understand um because someday i personally even as a cancer scientist i don't think there's anything worse than parkinson's alzheimer's it's really hard to i don't know it's hard to see it um and so there's you know even as a medical scientist it's good to have hope for things like this that there is progress but it's definitely still tough to to see you know, things are always complicated, too, by this whole microbiome science and how much it interplays with the immune system. So we've got a lot ahead of us, but a lot of smart people out there that are doing a good job. So we'll do more immune system stuff. The main two things that we're going to hit are going to be how the immune system is actually involved in uh, mating, evolution, and sexual selection in a lot of animals, including humans in some cases, and CAR T-cells, and this will be a big one, the CAR T-cell cancer therapies. And there's NK cell cancer therapies too, so we'll touch on those. It'll be awesome. So in any case, have a great night, and thanks so much for listening. Scout will not be saying goodbye. She's fast asleep. But thanks so much for listening again, like I said, and have a good night. See you.